Hey, welcome back to Do Theology Reacts. Just Jeremy here today. Thanks for joining me. I want to talk about Israel a bit and specifically respond to a video by Theocast where they talk about the modern state of Israel not being the old covenant version of Israel and why that matters. It's actually, I think, quite revealing about the differences that we have on the covenant theology side of things versus the dispensational side of things. I being on the dispensational side and uh, these guys being on the covenant side. I do want to say as an introduction that I respect these gentlemen. Um, I actually uh, know one of them, John, who doesn't speak much in this episode. Uh, John and I have spoken several times. We've had breakfast together, spoken on the phone, all that kind of stuff. Um, he's a good guy. He's a dedicated pastor, uh, a loving man that teaches the gospel. Uh, Justin, I've never met. Seems like an equally great guy. Much respect to both of them uh, for what they do. However, we have some pretty major disagreements. And one of these disagreements that we have has to do with eschatology, which is also related to ecclesiology. It's related to hermeneutics. It's uh, related to a bunch of things, how we read the Bible and uh, what we believe God is doing in the world, how his program is going to be unveiled. Um, so that's kind of the context, I guess, for this video. I, I also want to mention that this is a clip that they uploaded. You'll even see it at the beginning. It says Theocast Clips. It's from a full episode that they did. And at the beginning of that episode, they said that the intention of this video wasn't to have a theological debate, but to talk about what's going on in Israel, to um, help comfort those who are grieving through all of this and, and confused. Uh, however, they got pretty theological in the episode and they uploaded this clip that is all about theology. And so I thought, well, um, even though that wasn't their goal for the episode, and I know they probably weren't intending for this kind of theological react video to happen afterwards, that's just kind of how, how it went. And I think we can still do this charitably in love and with respect. So that's what I'm aiming for. And, uh, I'll go ahead and pull up the video and start reacting. So let's check it out. High level, what does the scripture teach regarding God's plan for Israel and God's plan in and through Israel? You and I, John, are covenant theologians now, so we are not right. people that see this radical disjointed disunity between the Old and New Testament. That's not at all what we're saying. Okay, I got to go ahead and pause right there. <laughs> I know I'm pausing before they even say much. I promise next time I hit play, I'll let them speak longer. But uh, here... He, Justin's kind of setting it up saying, you know, if you're dispensational, you've got a pretty radical discontinuity outlook with the Bible. God was doing one thing in the Old Testament with one people. You go to the New Testament, it's a new thing with a new people. Uh, there's not one people of God. There's uh, just different stuff going on. There are different purposes for Israel versus the church. There's a distinction. I mean, even just the fact that we believe there's a distinction between Israel and the church, he would say is discontinuity. Whereas from a covenant theology perspective, the presentation that they would like to offer would be something like Israel is just another name for the people of God. The church is in the Old Testament as Israel, Israel's in the New Testament as the church. It's the same uh, concept, one people of God, uh, that the church is uh, enjoying the fulfillment of so many of the promises that were made to Israel back then. There's, there's continuity through it all is kind of how they would present it. 
Uh, though I would, you know, just answer back to that by simply saying there are different ways of framing continuity and discontinuity. And anybody can make the case that they have the most uh, continuity and the other people have the most discontinuity. I, I think you can do that if you want to, regardless of what side of the debate you're on. So for instance, I would say, uh, yeah, in some ways, sure, you can point out the discontinuity within dispensationalism as far as God's program is concerned, that things are different now than they were then, that the church is not Israel. That is discontinuity to some degree, and you can say that, sure, yes. But then I would answer back and say, actually, covenant theology is the system of discontinuity because on the one hand, people in the Old Testament who were receiving promises from God to Israel, so say those Israelites, those redeemed Israelites in the Old Testament, they were to use a, a method of interpretation or a hermeneutic that was literal. They were to believe that God was going to restore them in their land, that he gave them a land, that he was going to restore them in that land after they went into captivity, and that the cities would be rebuilt and they would enjoy much prosperity and much peace. And they were to view that literally. Whereas in the New Testament, they would say in their system, the apostles were using a, a different hermeneutic, an allegorical hermeneutic. So Old Testament, people living at that time were to interpret God's promises literally, New Testament, the apostles, and now us, we are to go back and interpret those promises figuratively or allegorically. I would say dispensationalism has the upper hand on continuity when it comes to hermeneutics. Okay, so really it, it just depends on how we want to uh, frame it. Because dispensationalists, of course, believe that those promises that were made to Israel back then God meant to be taken literally then, and he means us to take them literally now. So I see a lot of continuity there, whereas covenant theologians like John and Justin here would disagree. So just wanted to point that out, but let's continue. Right. So, but having said that, our understanding as covenantal theologians is that God, without question, chose the nation of Israel. They were uniquely adopted by him as his people, and God had specific purposes that he meant to accomplish in and through them. And he established the nation through the covenant that he made with Abraham, where he promised Abraham descendants, like a number of physical offspring, and he promised a land that that people would dwell in, he promised yeah. also that kings would come from Abraham and the like. Having said that, later on so in the Old Testament— this is all like Genesis 12, Genesis 12, sure, 1 3. 15, 17, et cetera. Yep. That's right. That's where all that comes from. But then later on in the Old Testament, regarding the specific promises to Abraham— descendants and a land and kings and all that. When you get into the book of Joshua, when you get into the book of Nehemiah and other places, scripture's plain that everything God promised that he would do for Abraham, he did it. All right. So pause it there. A uh, few things I want to say. Uh, one, these promises were not just made to Abraham. If you read through the Old Testament text and get into the New Testament also, you'll see there are two other names that are often found in connection with Abraham, and that's his son and his grandson. Isaac and Jacob, promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, it all started with Abraham. He was the one that God called out, who was a pagan, and uh, God sovereignly redeemed him and said, hey, I'm going to bless you, and here's what's going to happen. And then he reaffirmed those blessings to his son Isaac and to his son uh, grandson Jacob. 
Jacob's name, of course, was changed to Israel, and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes. Their progeny became the 12 tribes of Israel. So I think it's important to recognize that we're not just dealing with Abraham here, but God's promises extended to Jacob, uh, who was Israel, and the tribes that followed. So there's one thing to point out. Another thing to point out is when they were speaking of the passages in question, uh, Genesis 12, 15, and 17 were mentioned. They did not mention Genesis 13. If you look at the end of Genesis 13, you'll see that that original promise to Abraham that gets reaffirmed to Isaac and Jacob is a promise of land, and it's a forever promise. In fact, it says that the Lord had Abraham go out and walk the land, the breadth and the width, go out and and examine the land. And after he did that, God says, it belongs to your descendants through Isaac and Jacob forever. It's a forever promise. And so when we start talking about fulfillment, we need to take that into account, don't we? That this is a forever promise. And speaking of fulfillment, Justin mentioned there that in Joshua and in Nehemiah, we see that the Lord fulfilled all that he had promised Abraham, is how he phrased that. Well, um, there's an issue with throwing Joshua and Nehemiah's names right next to each other, and it's that nearly 1,000 years separated the two of them, okay? So so what, what, why would uh, God fulfill, or how could we say, rather, that God fulfilled uh, this promise to Abraham through Joshua and through Nehemiah and the writings that they were inspired to, uh, to pass down? that it was clear that God fulfilled that. wouldn't If he fulfilled it, he fulfilled it. If he fulfilled it in Joshua, why would he need to fulfill it again a thousand years later through Nehemiah, is essentially what I'm asking here. And uh, it's interesting. I think the reason why he brought up Nehemiah, uh, or Joshua rather, was because it says in the book of Joshua how the Lord fulfilled what he had promised to Abraham. Uh, it I don't know if it says to Abraham, but the Lord fulfilled all that he had promised to Israel, that he would give them this land. And uh, Ken and I talked about this in a recent episode. We talked about it in our centennial episode when we were reacting to another video that was going against dispensationalism, how the Lord was blessing them, causing them to uh, defeat their enemies as they inherited their land, the land God gave them. He, he was blessing them and it was all theirs for the taking. But what's clear as you read the fullness of Joshua and then the next book that follows judges, just the first two chapters, what's clear is that they didn't end up inhabiting all of the land that was theirs because of their disobedience. They did not uh, do what God had called them to do. And so God was faithful to his promise of giving them that land. I, I believe that's what Joshua is saying, but the fullness of the promise was never realized at that time. So you get to a thousand years later with Nehemiah. This is after the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, back up. This is after the kingdom of Israel is split into two. And so you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom uh, taken by the Assyrians. Southern kingdom later taken by the Babylonians. You have Nehemiah then and Ezra and Esther. These books go together timetable-wise. Uh, where it's after the Babylonian captivity, where they're returning to the land. And so then there's this idea within covenant theology that actually that's the time that God fulfilled his promises because they were in captivity, they were scattered, and now they return. And perhaps passages like Deuteronomy 30 would be invoked where 
uh, its promise through Moses that in the latter days, God will uh, return them to the land from their captivity. Uh, many covenant theologians would say that happened after that Babylonian captivity when the Persians then allowed them to go back and rebuild uh, Jerusalem. Well, there are some problems with that and some pretty obvious problems too. I mean, part of the, these prophecies about the restoration in the land, God said when this restoration would be fulfilled in Israel, the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes would be united in harmony. But that didn't happen after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, you have some Israelites not even going back. The, the restoration promises also include that Israel would be obedient, that they would be totally restored to God, and they would be obedient to him. The law would be written on their hearts, and that they would be fully given over to the Lord. But you still had many sin issues. You had immoral priests in Israel. You have, if you read through the book of Ezra, intermarriage going on that was not supposed to happen. Uh, there are many other reasons. I mean, one more obvious one that I'll just throw out there is there were prophets after the return the, from Babylonian captivity, there were prophets like Zechariah that still looked forward to the restoration in the land that were still, they were still talking about it. And so you can't go to Joshua and say that the forever promise was fulfilled and didn't need to be fulfilled anymore because prophets kept talking about it. You can't go to Nehemiah and say that the forever promise was fulfilled then and no longer needed to be fulfilled anymore because prophets kept talking about it. And there are details regarding that restoration in the land that were never actualized. And so uh, to say Joshua and Nehemiah uh, make it obvious that God no longer uh, is going to fulfill this forever promise, to me, that just doesn't float. It just doesn't work with the biblical text. All right, let's continue. Now, alongside those temporal purposes that God had in establishing a people in a land, what was he ultimately doing? Mm -hmm. He was using Israel and ministering in and through Israel, working in and through Israel to bring the Christ who would save Israel and who would save the nations. And so the salvation of the nations came through the nation of Israel. And so that people was put, was established and put in the land of Canaan and governed by God's law and all of those kinds of things. And the covenant in particular that God made with David after the covenant God made with Abraham and the covenant made through Moses with the people of God makes a covenant with David. There's a promised son of David who's going to come, who's going to represent the people and save the nation. And we know that Jew and Gentile alike, anyone who will ever dwell with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth has been saved by Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. Now, uh, much of that, just amen, right? I mean, there's so much of that, that that's true and good, and there's no disagreement here. What I would disagree with is the framing, once again, where he's saying there were temporal promises, like the land, and then there's this eternal satisfaction or eternal realization or actualization, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the person and work of Jesus Christ is eternal land and the nation of Israel, even temporal. Now, again, uh, this is just not jiving with the biblical text. So I would point once more to Genesis 13, that the land is a forever promise. You could also go to Jeremiah 30 to 33 is a very important section where 
the Lord says, hey, if uh, the sun and moon and stars stop doing their thing up there, then Israel will cease to be a nation before me. <laughs> God says, as long as the solar system is doing its thing, he's going to recognize Israel. That's very, very important to remember. And so to just lump uh, Israel and their land, and those two things go together, the national identity of the people and their land very much go together like with every other nation. To say that that's all on the temporal side of things, and now we're beyond that, moving into the eternal side of things, the coming of Jesus Christ, uh, and we can just forget the land and the nation, that is just not the way the Bible sets us up to think about this. Even in Romans, when you go to Romans 9, the start of Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about his fellow countrymen. So there's a national recognition there. There's an ethnic recognition there of Israelites. He says, to them belong, present tense, to them belong the covenants. Paul recognized that the covenants that God made with Israel were still binding. All right. So uh, we can't say that Israel and their land, it was like a vehicle that got us to our destination of Jesus. And now you can just throw away the vehicle and it doesn't matter anymore. That's not the case. Yes, we recognize Jesus is the most precious person, place, or thing for, for anybody who has faith, right? Jesus is ultimate. But that doesn't mean that these really significant elements of God's program, like the nation of Israel and their land, have no continued purpose or value anymore. It's a, more of a both and than an either or. Okay, let's, uh, let's continue. Who was the goal of everything that God was doing in and through this people. And that has to be remembered because then as Jesus comes and ushers in the new covenant and he, the covenant to use our language, John, the covenant of grace is established with the coming of Jesus Christ. We now have to say that these promises that were uniquely situated in the Mosaic covenant, for example, how God is going to, with this unique people group, this geopolitical entity that is Israel, those things existed, those promises and those verses, like I'm going to bless those who bless you, I'm going to curse those who curse mm -hmm. you, existed for a period of time in redemptive history. And then with right. the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of God's plan is here, and the gospel is now going to go to the nations, and God's people on earth are now the church that includes Jew and Gentile. It's not only a geopolitical entity that is a, the nation of Israel under the old covenant in the land of Canaan. Okay, so a lot to a lot to be said there, and I'll just try to make it quick. Um, there's this again, this framing of Jesus is the fulfillment and the goal of all that the new the Old Testament talks about, and that's where they get the hermeneutic of looking back and seeing the promises made to Israel in an allegorical sense. So rebuilt cities, prosperity with agriculture, um, harmony and peace with their neighboring nations, all of that is allegorically fulfilled in Jesus, particularly now that he is building his church, the church made up of Jew and Gentile, who is now the true Israel of God. Is how we should understand that according to them. We are now reaping the benefits of those promises because Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. And he's the one who offers to us peace and prosperity. And uh, the, the wolf and the lamb are lying down together in an allegorical sense now. Uh, 
Um, and they, they take this approach because um, from their perspective, that's how the apostles of the New Testament viewed Israel, was that they're just a done deal, and we're, we're not going to go back. Uh, the way Anthony Hokema talks about it is like scaffolding on a building. Israel was the scaffolding to get us to now Jesus with his church. And we, we're not going to go backwards and put the scaffolding back up. Well, that, again, is just uh, not the way the apostles talk about it. If we, I could point you to Romans 9 one more time. Romans 9, Paul says, present tense, to Israel belong the covenants. So uh, we can't just say that we've made this theological decision that God did not literally mean that they would be restored in a land forever with prosperity, uh, but that he was actually talking about a time of spiritual prosperity and peace in the church internally, that we would have peace with God and peace with one another, uh, and and that is what he truly meant. We, we just can't do that. Uh, you actually don't see that happening in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the apostles, there are some difficult passages, I'll totally admit that, but the apostles treat the Old Testament text in a literal sense. They don't redefine words, and they don't change the original meaning of what was said. What God desired the original recipients of the prophecy to believe, he desires us to believe. That's critically important. And that's one of my favorite questions to ask covenant theologians, is what did God desire the original recipients to believe? And uh, it's, it's often unanswered, but it has to be. Well, he desired them to believe what he said. And that's going to be the same for us. God doesn't have a different plan for us. He has the same plan. Uh, I think there was more I was going to say, but now I, I can't quite remember. Oh, I do remember. Uh, he, in that clip too, now we're so far removed from it, you'd have to go back and listen to it probably. He uh, included, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. This initial promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He included that under the Mosaic Covenant, uh, which was just, uh, I mean, it was, he was kind of saying a long sentence there, and maybe he uh, wasn't meaning to say that, but that's how I heard it. Uh, if that's the case of what he was meaning to say, that, that's wrong. Um, that promise that was given to Abraham was given well before the Mosaic Covenant. And uh, the Mosaic Covenant coming along, the conditional covenant that God made with his people through Moses, that doesn't change this unconditional promise of blessing to Abraham that was made way prior. Okay, well, let's finish the video now. And so that kind of clear understanding is needed to start to try to parse this out in terms of how we should think about the geopolitical entity that is Israel now post-1948. Last comment from me, that geopolitical entity is not Israel under the old covenant. That's right. not how we should understand it. Israel established by the covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David, that nation ceased to be when Rome flattened it. Okay. So um, here at the very end, he's making the point that the nation that exists today, Israel, since 1948, when they were given part of their land back and they, they moved into their land. That is, they're not the same as Israel in the old covenant 
Very true, right? I mean, <laughs> they're not the same people. We know that much. This is uh, 2,000 plus years removed. Um, it's not the, not the same, he says. He says that that Israel, the, the one of the old covenant, it was done in 70 AD when the Romans flattened Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem, famous event, 70 AD. Now, that's a curious statement to me, and I was trying to read up on uh, some of my differing eschatological views that I have on, in my library behind me before recording this and didn't find much. It may be an indicator that I need to order some books on this subject. I was tr- trying to figure out w- what exactly um, this view would entail, because he mentioned in this video that Jesus established the covenant of grace, is how he phrased it. But we, we could all agree, Jesus initiated the new covenant, the new covenant in his blood. The church began after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Church began at Pentecost. So you have the church beginning in the 30s AD, and then you have Israel ending, in his view, in 70 AD. 30s AD, 70 AD. So 35 plus years of what? Exactly. And and I was trying to find, even on YouTube, I was searching like, okay, what's the partial preterist explanation of this? Because when you search just preterist, you get, you know, all the heretics coming in talking about Jesus returning in 70 AD, which did not happen. So I was just, try, just trying to figure out, okay, where, where could he be coming from with this? And I, I don't really understand. So maybe you guys could help me out with that. But um, there's this understanding that Israel was recognized by God as a national entity, an ethnic entity until 70 AD. And, but after that, no more does God recognize them and neither should we. That's what was being stated there. That the Israel today, they're just a nation like any other nation. It might as well be uh, Romania. We'll just throw a nation out there. Um, it's just another nation. It's totally disconnected from the old covenant. Yeah, but not really there still are ethnic Jews. And I think one of the most profound witnesses to God being the faithful God who keeps covenant is that the Jews still exist. What other people group had their land uh, taken from them and they had no identity, they were totally scattered, they had no land, could have survived like the Jews have survived up until this very day where they're now living in part of their land again. I mean, it's absolutely amazing that this has happened. We're talking thousands of years of world history from when Jesus was walking the earth and when 70 AD happened till now. And there they are. They haven't disappeared. There they are. And there were promises made. There was covenant made to the descendants of Jacob. And the descendants of Jacob are still around. So God clearly, based on his word, still has a plan for them. And for our benefit, we're living at a time when he brought them back to a portion of the land that he gave them. And uh, one of these days, it will all be fulfilled. It's just amazing how, how God has kept the Jewish people around. I think it's just absolutely amazing. And to say that, you know, the yeah, they were scattered through their captivities with the Assyrians and Babylonians way back when, and then then God brought some of them back, and they were still rebellious, and they weren't, you know, the way they were supposed to, but he brought them back, and uh, he's never going to do that again. To me, it's just, it's foolish. It's just foolish to say God would never do that again. The, the nation that exists today is just a nation. 
It, it doesn't prove anything. I, I think it does prove something. I think it proves that God has, in multiple occasions in the past, and he will again gather these people that have been scattered. He will put them through the fire. If you read Zechariah uh, 13, it's an amazing passage. A third of them will come out of it. All Israel then will be saved. He will, by his sovereign grace, purge them. They will be saved. They will be restored in their land. They will worship their king, Jesus, and it's going to be beautiful. Okay. Well, uh, I hope that's helpful in this conversation about Israel and what God is doing with them and the differing views that there are within Christianity. And uh, again, I respect these guys and uh, hope this was uh, hope this can be received in the spirit of charity in which it's offered. Uh, so we want to advance these conversations so that we all grow in our understanding of what God has said. Thanks for listening. God bless.